Welcome to you all. Uh, I would like to start with a few apologies. Uh, many of you will have noticed uh, when you look at the programme that we have an all-male lineup, um, and uh, this isn't, as is rumoured on uh, on the blogs, um, a deliberate uh, chauvinist decision. It's purely accidental, and we have a whole series of apologies from Jean Howard, Crystal Bartolovich. Um, Jennifer Bates, Leslie Chamberlain, Catherine Malibu, a whole list, uh, Dimba Callahan, of speakers who at one point were to be speaking and during the course of the last six months have, for various different reasons, uh, been unable to be here with us. So they send their apologies and greetings to you today. And um, I have to say that I'm enormously grateful to those of you who have come, some of you enormous distances to be here um, at what is in fact the fifth of the symposia on Shakespeare in this temple. We began of course with uh, Shakespeare and Garrick in honour of Garrick's vision of bringing the thinkers of the world to reflect on Shakespeare here in the temple that he built in 1755. We then went on to Shakespeare and Scandinavia, not so um, irrelevant to this building because although Voltaire didn't come as Garrick hoped, the boy king of Denmark, Christian VII, did come and was regaled by Garrick's recital of Hamlet in this room shortly before he went mad and had his wife incarcerated um, and imitated Hamlet. We then had a conference last autumn on Shakespeare and the Enlightenment, naturally leading on uh, from Garrick's vision, and most recently, Garrick and Hegel. We're following it with a whole series of symposia on Shakespeare and philosophers that I hope will run and run. But I think I'm confident in saying none of those philosophers will have been so immersed in Shakespeare as our subject today. Marx was entirely embedded in the Shakespearean world, Shakespearean quotations, and his household um, we know from his daughter's accounts, worshipped Shakespeare like the Bible. Uh, by the age of six, they were able to quote, um, uh, Eleanor said, whole scenes of Shakespeare's plays. And uh, Marla, uh, <laughs> Marx, um, a strange Freudian <laughs> lapse, uh, Marx himself um, was very interested in, in authorship questions. I think that's why I said Marlowe, and uh, corresponded with Furnival and the New Shakespeare Society himself, as well as being a um, prime mover of a Shakespeare reading group, the Dogbury uh, Club, that, which met occasionally in Marx's house and in other places in London. The Dogbury Club took its name from Marx's uh, term for academics and for Shakespeare critics. We're all dogberries, uh, fond of malapropisms and getting everything wrong. The Dogbury Club, I like to think, is a sort of a spiritual uh, precedent for what we are doing. Marx's immersion in Shakespeare began as part of an entire German Enlightenment culture in which Shakespeare's plays, plots and characters were taken as the common culture of exchange. And in the early days, his Quotations from Shakespeare in the um, newspapers of the time have to do very much with um, adopting a persona, adopting a mask. We all know, of course, that I'm sure that Thersites was the mask that uh, in the Rheinische Zeitung Marx adopted very early on. And a favourite quotation 
that stayed with Marx all his life was Thersites, wars and lechery, nothing else holds fashion, all wars and lechery. And the exchanges in his journalism, which run through his correspondence too, shows that he naturally adopted a Shakespearean persona. This is some plain and honest man who must speak truth. A line from King Lear Cornwall's line was one that he liked to attach himself to, a plain and honest man who must speak truth. It's, of course, Kent. Slowly over Marx's lifetime, the fascination with Shakespeare develops into um, a methodology using Shakespeare in ways that have been profoundly influential on Shakespeare critics. Our first speaker today has rightly pointed out that you cannot construct from Marlowe's, uh, Marx's writings on Shakespeare, it's very early in the morning, and I haven't had enough, haven't had enough coffee, um, uh, from Marx's writings on Shakespeare, a, a consistent Marxian methodology. The references in Marx's work to Shakespeare are scattered, but they are extremely prevalent in the correspondence and in, and, and in the journalism, perhaps more than they are in the publications. And the methodology that it develops has to do partly with playing, Mar playing Shakespeare, in Marx's mind, off against Schiller. Schiller as the idealistic, you might say, superstructure against Shakespeare, always the realist, always in contrast to Schiller, as it were, the, the base, the material base, as opposed to the, um, uh, the Schiller superstructure, the, um, the world of illusion and ideology and, and, and dream. The sense that Shakespeare provides Marx with a frame for the dialectic is never stronger than um, when, for example, Marx talks of Hegel's concept of sovereignty as like Snug's impersonation of the lion. It is both simultaneously the lion of contradiction and the Snug of mediation. And this uh, image of Snug performing uh, the lion runs through all Marx's uh, comments on um, revolutionary situations in France in particular, most famously in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, where an entire analysis, of course it begins with the famous quotation from Hegel, um, history repeats itself, but it goes on to discuss the ways in which when men and women make a revolution, they do so in borrowed costumes with an entire and very famous uh, opening that is clearly saturated in Julius Caesar. And in that sense in Julius Caesar, how many ages hence shall, um, in, in accents yet unborn, shall this our lofty scene be acted over, presenting a Shakespearean sense that's, of course, been tremendously uh, important in new historicists thinking that the sign precedes the referent. Uh, Marx seems to have picked up very early on from Shakespeare the importance of performance and the importance in particular of second performance, of reprise, of returns um, of previous performances. The perfect image, of course, for discussing the two Napoleons. He constantly compared the second Napoleon, Napoleon III, to Nick Bottom um, as an impersonator and uh, a second-hand, second-rate um, imitation of what had been acted so well by the first Napoleon. The sense in which the Marxian, or Marx's immersion in Shakespeare's work influences thinking about capitalism has never, of course, been stronger and more important to us than his uh, continuous reference to Timon of Athens. Our first speaker 
has been extremely uh, acute in pointing out something that others have also done so, but I think that David Hawkes has made it a particular point of it in his Marxist analysis, that Marxist analysis is rooted in a medieval critique of usury. R.H. Tawney famously called him the last of the schoolmen. Um, and that, that has been an important part of, of, of David Hawkes's immersion with and engagement with Marx, the sense in which Marx's critique of capital, Marx's critique of money, is in many respects a traditional Christian medieval one. This has, of course, uh, involved Marx in a complex, ambiguous relationship to his own race, notably in the essay on the Jewish question when speaking about Shylock. Stephen Greenblatt has engaged um, in his essay on Marlowe with Marx's uh, own uh, deeply ambivalent attitude to his own race in the Jewish question essay and in all his comments on Shylock. Um, using Sherlock as a caricature of the moneylender, of the usurer, belonging, that is, in that sense, to a, to a deeply um, Christian medieval critique of mammon, has conflicted and complexified the ways that we respond to, to Marx's analysis. But the sense in which the entire concept of the dialectic is filtered through a Shakespearean lens, which David Hawkes has picked up in all his work and all his meditation on uh, Marx is beautifully captured um, in that uh, line from Capital where Marx says, uh, commodities love money, but the course of true love never did run smooth. <laughs> Quoting Romeo and Juliet in that absolutely critical place in Capital. These problematics, the sense in which Marx's critique of Capital through the lens of Shakespeare is that of a schoolman, is that of a backward-looking, in some sense, medieval critique of usury, and the complexity also of his relationship to um, the Jewish figure of Shylock has been, I think, an impulse, um, a provocation to David Hawkes's work. I've photocopied a couple of quotations from David Hawkes's work, um, which help us, I think, to set the agenda for today. All David's work has been, I think I'm fair in saying, circling around questions of commodification. Commodification has been at the centre of his project. And if you look at his, his run of publications and books, you can see that there is an extraordinary, consistent, focused programme here, the like of which actually is quite unusual in, in Shakespeare schools, who tend to be very pick and mix in their opportunism, particularly um, in the new historicist years. But you have, you have ploughed a particular furrow or followed a, a special star, and you have followed the concept and the problematic of commodification through an engagement with Marx's thinking that made it inevitable, natural, and right that you should open our discussions today. From um, David's work, let me quote, first of all, um, this paragraph. It may surprise us to find Marx and Engels interested in a 16th century author because of his modernity. And you pick up very strongly, I think, in all your work, the importance of anachronism in Marx's reading of Shakespeare, the anachronicity of Shakespeare, both in the um, sense of revolution repeating itself, but also the sense of performance itself runs through Marx's thinking about Shakespeare, and you pick this up very well. 
Um, it's, of course, very uh, patent that Marx is attracted to those scenes like the plays within the plays, in which the actors themselves reflect on their own performance. He loves, in particular, the uh, pageant scene in Love's Labels Lost, where Costard plays Pompey inadequately. And he has that wonderful line, Shakespeare saw that Pompey was a turd. Um, and, and clearly, the, the, what he picks up there is the, is the sense of Shakespeare's being able to play on anachronism, to play on anachronicity. And this is something that I think runs through your engagement with, with, with Marx. It may surprise us to find Marx interested in a 16th century author because of his modernity. But these 19th century thinkers were well aware that the essential outline of modern psychology had first become visible three centuries earlier, and they revered Shakespeare as one of the first to have glimpsed it. The interest Marx and Engels took in Shakespeare was more than recreational. Shakespeare's treatment of economic themes, his strategic employment of economic metaphors, even his fluctuating and sensitive economic vocabulary exerted a profound and openly acknowledged influence on their own theory. So a very positive statement, I think, to start us off uh, from David's thinking about Marx and Shakespeare. But then, despite their disproportionate influence and extensive afterlife, Marx's actual comments on Shakespeare are few and far between. Well, I would dispute that, because I think they're prevalent in the correspondence uh, and, of course, in the, in the early journalism. Um, and uh, notably, of course, in the journalism that he wrote for the New York Times, or the parliamentary debates, where Palmerston is always a false stuff, and the Times editorial is greeted with well-roared lion in response. So in the journalism, I think it's all pervasive. But he is scarcely more expansive on general questions, David Hawke says, of literature or aesthetics. Such asides as do survive are neither lengthy nor rigorous enough to provide a solid theoretical foundation for literary critical practice. And so Marxist critics have been forced to extrapolate their methodology from Marx's economic and philosophical observations. On this basis, they practice what they take to be a Marxist method in their own work. So there's, I think, two striking statements which provide us with the parameters of our discussion today. Marx's intense engagement, but scattered engagement throughout his work, complicated by his attitude towards Shylock as a Jew and by his medieval notions of usury. And the challenge, the provocative challenge, to make of a Marxist, Marxist engagement with Shakespeare a Marxist methodology of our own. No one, I think, is better equipped to set us off on that path than David Hawkes is today. <laughs> <laughs>